0: Folks, as I, I contemplated this evening's service and I anticipated that we might not have a, a very uh, large congregation, I thought it probably wouldn't be the right time to start a new series that we would then uh, run into the future. Um, I think if you start a series that a lot of people uh, don't be a part of uh, the introduction, then, then we miss something. So I, uh, I was glad, actually, of the opportunity to, to do something that I don't do very often, and that's just to to share with you uh, some things that God's been uh, showing me. So there are a couple of passages uh, through which God's spoken to me in the last while, and I thought I'd take a few moments uh, to to share on each of them uh, with you this evening. So the first one, uh, and you might want to have it open before you, is Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. It's page one thousand one hundred and thirty-six, Romans nine, verses thirty to thirty-three, page one thousand one hundred and thirty-six. This is not an easily intelligible passage. I'll warn you about that, but don't don't let that worry you. I'm not intending this evening to 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 go right into the argument of Romans chapter nine, but simply to to point out. Uh, something that I, I've seen there that that I found challenging. I, I think I heard God's voice in it. So Romans 9, beginning at verse 30. By the way, just to, to frame it somewhat, even if we don't get into the detail, from Romans chapter 9, for the next two or three chapters, Paul deals with a very specific issue in the argument of Romans. He, he's been talking in chapters 1 to 8 about how salvation Comes by faith and how it's come to the Gentiles beyond the, the, the Jewish community, who, who for the most part had been the people of God up until that point. But Paul then turns back in, in the opening verses of, of chapter 9 to ask, Well, what about the Jews? And he shows us his own heart, his heart for the Jewish people, that he longs to see them gathered into the family of God. Uh, those who trust in Jesus Christ. But but let's let's let our focus fall on these last verses because there's something important here that I think uh, may speak to us this evening. Paul says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Why not? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I've already said the context here is Paul's anguish for his own people, the Jews, who despite being God's chosen people, despite having his word, despite having the witness of the prophets, seem to have missed the the crucial moment of of the Messiah coming. They missed the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let me read the same passage for you from the message translation in which I uh, was reading it just earlier this week. And I think hearing it again and hearing it in a different version might just help. Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what was what God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah gives us the metaphor for pulling this together. Careful, I have put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone that you can't get around, but the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you'll find me on the way, not in the way. I was really struck uh, as I was reading this earlier this week in my own devotional readings. There's a, a contrast, and it's the way Peterson renders it in the message that really spoke out to me. We find God is either in the way or else we discover him on the way God is someone who is either the the rock on which we stand or he's a rock on which we stumble and folks it strikes me that the church is is never in a, a neutral relationship with God you can't just be drifting along with God either Either we're stumbling on him, either our refusal to take him seriously, to, to go his way, maybe like the Jews of Paul's time, means that, that we miss him altogether. Or else he's he's the rock, he's the foundation on which we stand. It's It's one or the other. There's no in-between. Why did the Jews of Paul's day, religious as they were, not... Understand God's plans in the Messiah, Jesus. Peterson puts it like this. He says, instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them, like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. It's a funny image, and it takes a while to to let to to really let your mind's eye rest on it the idea that that we might miss God himself, that in the church, with all that we do, he might be the elephant in the room, the the one who's there, but somehow we miss. I think it's an incredibly sobering idea. That the church itself might be missing God. It was happening clearly in in Paul's time as as the people of God, the Jews, missed the Messiah among them. But it's happened many other times in church history too. I've been reading over the summer Eric Martaxis biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastor, prophet, martyr, spy. Some of you may have had the chance to, to read that or glance into it. And Bonhoeffer's a, a German, starts out as a theologian, ends up with more of a, a pastoral uh, emphasis, and he very quickly gets drawn into the what's happening in the German church. So Hitler's rising to power throughout the 30s, and the Lutheran Church, the main Protestant church in Germany, over the period of those years, allows itself gradually to morph into what's called the Reichskirche, the church of the Nazis, the church with a Nazi ideology, the church that won't allow a converted Jew to be its pastor because of his racial identity. It's a totally anti-gospel church. And years down the line, we look at that and we think, that's ridiculous. How could that possibly happen? We would never allow it. So the question I began asking myself as I was reading this stuff is, how can the church be so blind? But the longer I read it, and the more I saw the the complexity and the subtlety and the time over which this slowly evolved, I stopped asking myself, how could they be so blind? And I started asking myself a different question. In what ways that only history is going to show, have I been blind in my time? In what ways is the church of which I'm a part blind to the the issues of today? In what ways are we missing God and stumbling as we try to follow him? See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus Christ, we will either stumble on him or will stand and never be put to shame. Will you pray with me for a moment that we will be people who don't get so caught up with our own God projects, as Peterson renders it, who don't get so smug and self-righteous and self-confident that we miss the the simple and profound reality that it's it's God who must be at the center. Let's pray together. father god it's a it's a, an uncomfortable thought for us that at times your people have missed you entirely they have been so preoccupied with their own sense of things their own traditions their own ways of doing things that they've missed you and Lord as we read your word and as we consider our own church life we we want to open ourselves to recognize that that's a possibility for us here and now Lord it's possible that in all our activity that in all our our, our church life somehow we we might just be stumbling over you. Father God, we pray that you would come among us, that you would give us a a clarity of vision to see, to see what it is that you call us to and to live faithfully for you. Lord, give us hearts that are passionate only for you, that don't care one little bit about our denomination and our congregation and anything else, only you and your glory. Lord, let us be the people whom Isaiah described, the ones who trust in you, who are never put to shame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few moments then to share a second uh, passage with you, one that I uh, was challenged by a few months ago, uh, but would love to share with you now just for a couple of moments. Jeremiah chapter 13 uh, on page seven hundred 771, if you're using the Bibles there. Jeremiah 13. page seven hundred and seventy one this passage appeals to me uh, for a couple of reasons uh, one, I just think it 's quite funny in a way um, but then it 's massively profound it 's strange but massively profound I, uh, I probably have shared this with you before uh, when we talked about reading the bible together i 've read the the Bible through a number of times, so I'm conscious of the content of Scripture, even even when I don't know the detail. But this is a story that I just don't remember ever reading, uh, even as I read the Bible through. So let's let's read it together. Um, The NIV calls it the linen belt. I think it should be called Jeremiah and the Moldy Shorts. So with that, let's read it. This is what the Lord said to me Go and buy a linen belt and put it round your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt as the Lord directed, and I put it round my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time Take the belt you brought bought and are wearing round your waist, and go now to Pereth and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and I hid it at Perth as the Lord told me. Many days later the Lord said to me go now to Perth and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perth and I dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it but now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and who go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound round a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel, and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they have not listened. I didn't know this passage very well, as I say, until I was doing a bit of work for the Series I taught in Faith Academy, our recommissioned series, thinking about the mission of the church. If you know anything about the, the book of Jeremiah, you'll know that in those long chapters he, he uses a, a series of dramatic parables where where God speaks to him and asks him to act something out as a way of communicating to, to Israel. So, uh, probably the most famous one is the, the parable of the potter. But here's one, as I say, that I hadn't really noticed before. Jeremiah and the moldy shorts. Uh, The NIV talks here about a linen belt, but apparently um, what we're talking about is something that would have ended up being like uh, shorts. It's not an undergarment. It's the garment that goes over but around a, a man's waist. God commands Jeremiah, go and buy a beautiful pair of shorts. And these shorts looked good. And people in Jerusalem, as they saw Jeremiah in his shorts, noticed uh, these beautiful shorts. They drew attention. So the first part of God's commands, strange enough, but, but there it is. But then God tells him, take those shorts, Jeremiah, that you've bought and and bury them. Now, we're told that he's to bury them at, at Perath. And you'll see in the footnote that it's Uh, possibly near the river euphrates the the scholars reckon it probably is it was to be a burying them in a riverside setting so somewhere damp so you can sort of see where this is going to go bury your nice clothes somewhere damp it's not going to do them any good months later god sends jeremiah back to dig up the shorts and guess what they're ruined these once beautiful shorts that looked so good are, are now moldy full of mildew, they're ruined and they're good for nothing. And it's a strange story and if we didn't get some sort of interpretation I don't know where we'd go with it, quite frankly. But what is it that the Lord says this parable is to mean? This is what the Lord says verse 9. In the same way, I'll ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, these wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, who go after other gods to serve and worship them. They'll be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound round a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they haven't listened. This is an incredible image. It, it's really struck me. I, I've always understood the biblical theme of us clothing ourselves in God, clothing ourselves in Christ's righteousness. It's a New Testament theme Uh, that Paul uses a number of times. Clothe yourselves in Christ. And that's what we're to do. But I've never seen this. The image here is that God wants to clothe himself in his people. That's what he says. Verse 11, As a belt around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Israel of Judah to me. God wants to wear his people. God wants his people to be beautiful and to draw attention to him. Our purpose as the people of God is to draw attention to our God. That's what God says in verse 11, the last part of it, to be my people for my renown and my praise and my honor. That's what God always intended for us. It's not that, that God wants us to, to be beautiful, to draw attention to ourselves. If you think about it for a second, if, if I'm going out with Claire for the evening and she's wearing a beautiful dress and I say to her, Claire, that is a beautiful dress. In a sense, it's true that I'm saying something about the dress. Yes, it's beautiful, but I'm saying so much more. I'm saying that dress is beautiful because it sets off you. The purpose of the dress is to show you in all your beauty. And that's what's caught my eye. That's what God wants from his people, to be that dress. That's how he wants us to live in this world Just as a dress draws the attention to the person who's wearing it, God wants people to say, That's a lovely church. And then to see the beauty of the living God who inhabits that church. (coughs) The challenge of this parable is that it tells us that while that was God's intention, At this point, the opposite's happened. We have a great phrase in Ulster about clothes. I wouldn't be seen dead in that, we say. In Jeremiah 13, the living God says of his people, Israel and Judah, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. I wanted to wear you like a like a dress suit, like a like a beautiful dress. But not not the way you are. You're like a pair of moldy shorts. I, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. Folks, although this is written with a, a heavy a heavy tone of judgment on God's people. I, I think the, the image here, it's, it's just stayed with me. This idea that we are to, that, that the Lord wants to wear us. Each one of you individually, but, but particularly us corporately. He, he wants to, to wear us. He wants to parade us in East Belfast, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. He wants us to be that beautiful dress. I can't imagine of a a greater dignity than to be the one who who somehow draws people's sight to Christ. That's our calling. I find it staggering, and, and that's why I wanted to share that with you this evening. Christopher Wright whose book I was reading when I came across this, he says a couple of things that that I think are just they're so true. He says, If there's nothing in the least admirable about the lives of Christians individually or the collective witness of the church, then there's small hope of the world finding anything to admire in the God we represent, the God who wants to put us on like a dress suit, Or a party gown. For too long in Ulster, the gospel has been preached most loudly and most vigorously by a bunch of often very unattractive people. Another thing that Chris Wright says, he says, part of the mission of God's people is to have God so much at the center of who we are and what we do that there's a centripetal force, God's own gravitational pull, something that draws people into the sphere of God's blessing. He talks about missional magnetism, and I love that. that our lives individually and our our corporate life ought to be magnetic. Folks, if, if the strangeness of this passage helps you to remember it, then that's good. Go back to it and read it again. But let the meaning... Of this, settle on your hearts. This is your identity in Christ. Your calling to make Him attractive before the world in which you, He's called you to be. Let's pray together again, just for a moment. Pray that that God would impress this on our hearts. He'd show us this incredible purpose that He has for us, and then that He'd empower us by His Spirit to, to really. Live this out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It's you you call it a double-edged sword. It's you who tells us that it's it's sharp and that it goes right to the heart of things. And we've seen that again just even in these few minutes. Lord, we're we're staggered by this image you give us that. That your desire is to wear your people. That we're to be like a beautiful garment for you. We're to be eye-catching for the world around us. So that they might notice and that their gaze might fall finally on Jesus and his beauty. Lord, what an incredible dignity you give us allowing us to, to work with you in this way. Father God, we, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when, when individually our lives have, have spoken not at all of you, not at all of your holiness and your purity and your love and your kindness and your mercy, Lord forgive us for those times when corporately we've been an embarrassment to you when you have looked on your church and you've said I wouldn't be seen dead in that Lord we pray that that you would come and, and make us new not not for ourselves but for your glory Lord make us beautiful more beautiful than we could ever imagine so that more and more of our our family and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors, more of them would be drawn into a saving relationship with Jesus. Make us something so that you can be everything for more of the people we know and love. Lord, we count it such a privilege to be your people. We thank you for your endless patience with us that you're gracious beyond measure. And we thank you that even though we're, we're far from where we could be, that you're leading us each day another step along the road to, to Christ-like maturity. Lord, come and work in us, each one of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.